Our second scripture reading today comes from the book of Genesis. We are picking up in the middle of Genesis, chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. Let us listen for what this story has to say to us today. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan, sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children struggled in the womb with her, and she said, If this is to be the way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore, he was called Edom. Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die of what used to me is my birthright. Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Growing up in the strong home, this was a common refrain. When we were little, mom would make us lunch and have us down for a nap before her stories came on. (laughs) When you heard the music of the theme song, you knew you better stay in your room until nap time and days of our lives was over. As we got a little bit older, we were allowed to join mom in the living room, taking a break from the heat of the day And as we did, we began to learn the stories of all the intertwined relationships of the Horton and Brady families who lived in this small town of Salem. 
I learned that the relationships of the people of Salem had a ripple effect. Years down the road, some new character would come into the scene, a long-lost brother or a long-lost daughter, and you had to know the backstory of the Hortons and the Bradys to fully appreciate the current story. And while these stories might lean toward the salacious at times, there was a realness to them that also helped draw you in. There was birth and death, love and fear, betrayal, selfish motives, greed, family conflicts. Nothing was left out. Now, while Days of Our Lives does have a cult following, it isn't the foundation of a religion. However, I do find similarities between Days and the book of Genesis. Much like the ongoing family saga found in Days of Our Lives, Genesis is the story of a family and the people who make up that family. It provides us with a complicated story of family full of ambition, deceit, sorrow, death, birth, encounters with the divine, love, and enmity. Our passage for today tells the story of ambition and deceit to rival any soap opera storyline. We start by learning the lineage of these twin boys, Jacob and Esau, sons of Isaac, sons of Abraham. The boys were different from each other from the very beginning. Esau was an outdoorsman, a skilled hunter who spent his time out in the fields. He was his father Isaac's favorite. Jacob was a quiet person, an introvert who stayed inside all day, reading and helping in the kitchen. He was his mother's favorite. And maybe at the outset, there is something here about the risk and potential for tragedy and parental favoritism and sibling rivalry. But you have to wonder if even in utero, these boys knew what they were going to be in for as the children of Isaac and Rebekah. One of them would be loved by mom, one by dad. The affections of their parents would be handed out at a cost. The experienced love that was divisive and bred scarcity. It was the fear of scarcity, the fear that there wouldn't be enough for him, that led Jacob to believe that he had to trick Esau to gain the birthright. The birthright that would have given Esau a greater portion of his father's wealth and would place Esau into the position of power or leadership over the family upon their father's death. At the same time, Esau mistakenly thinks that his birthright is a mere idea, a social construct, something he can relinquish on command. He didn't value this gift of privilege. But even in Isaac's faults, we can weave some sympathy for him. Isaac's father, Abraham, was promised to be an ancestor of many generations. Abraham was the receiver of the covenant and the promise. And the narrator of this text wants to make sure we remember that Isaac's connection to Abraham was from the very beginning. These are the descendants of Isaac, the narrator says, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac. 
for all of Abraham's fame, he did, we should remember, hike Isaac up a mountain, tie him up, and prepare to sacrifice him on an altar. God intervened at the last minute, offering a ram as a substitute. So perhaps that is why the narrator reminds us of Abraham. Isaac's difficulty in relating to his own sons could be directly connected to his relationship as a son to his father Abraham. The notion of primogeniture, the law that allowed the eldest son to inherit the ranch, has a shaky record in the Bible. Beginning with the firstborn inheritors of Genesis, Adam and Eve's children, Cain murdered his younger brother Abel, leaving number three, Seth, to carry on. And on it goes. Isaac was, after all, Abraham's second son, inheriting the promise instead of Ishmael. And it will happen later with Jacob's children too. Reuben and Simeon and Levi are passed over in favor of Judah, son number four. And Joseph, Jacob's 11th child, will be annoyed when Jacob gives a grandfather blessing to Joseph's youngest son instead of the firstborn. When Joseph tries to stop him, to get him to give the blessing to Manasseh instead of Ephraim, Jacob says, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a great people. He shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. What God said to Rebekah when she was pregnant, Jacob repeats again to his son. The right of the firstborn to inherit is described in Deuteronomy, chapter 21, 15 through 17, if you're interested. But it's not spelled out as law there. It's only explained. The right that was so prevalent across the world, it was just assumed to be right. And as we see in the text this morning, it was assumed as reality, even by the men who were the beneficiaries of a subverted inheritance. So even though the male head of a household dominated family structures of ancient Israel and our society for so long, this passage reminds us that God is not confined by these structures. Remember, in primogeniture, the oldest son inherited everything, a zero-sum game of inheritance. It was understood that God gave the firstborn status. It was an irrevocable entitlement, privilege, and advantage. Yet this passage, and so much of Genesis, turns it all on its head. Through the intricate stories of the family in Genesis, we can learn to reevaluate the power and place of privilege today. Those who were expected to hold the power, born to hold the power, easily lost it. It reminds us to take notice of those to whom we give power unquestionably, those who hold privilege because it is expected. Repeatedly, we see God using and calling and working through the unexpected. So how might we also open our eyes to God's work in the world 
reminding ourselves that God isn't constrained to any system we humans put in place? How might we have faith in a family that surrounds us, all of the members of that family? And it would be easy here to demonize either Jacob or Esau, but what they are is complicated men and a lineage God has decided for God's own reason to bless. Jacob is neither evil nor virtuous. He is human. So is Esau. This observation doesn't excuse their behavior, but it does help us reflect on the ways God's work gets done through ordinary people. In the story of our biblical ancestors, we can see how trauma gets passed down from one generation to the next. And it is easy to blame one person for one action, which is often how our society functions. It'd be more honest to recognize the bigger systemic ways our behavior is informed by our upbringing, by our social location, our education, our race, our class. My grandmama liked to know about people. She liked to know their stories. She liked to know who their people are. This was a way to know connections, to know relationships, to know who it was that shaped you. Now, it might seem like my grandmama was trying to place you in a box with your people, clean and tidy. But I think it was more of a reminder that everyone's story is bigger than one person or one action. Jacob and Esau are a part of something much bigger than themselves. Their people, their family are messy. Their relationships are intertwined with so many others, you can't divide them out. Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Rebekah may rise above the trauma of their family systems later in the story, but here they are trapped. We are reminded in this story to have compassion for people who can't yet break out of the past of their stories. We are reminded that we need to do our own work of healing too. Genesis tells the story of real people with all their faithfulness and faults, but it also tells the story of a God who is never confined by human standards. Standards of scarcity, of oppression, of fear. And I think this is where we find hope when we look out and we see the patriarchy and racism and classism and sexism that so divides our world. God doesn't work in human systems, but continues to work through and love human beings. God loves and counts us as family. And as family, we know that we are called to continue to share the stories of God's people so others might know all of those connections and might experience God's love. May it be so. Amen.